Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Disinformation Highway, the Prime Minister apologizes on behalf of Parliament for its recognition of a Ukrainian veteran who served with a Nazi unit. But an expert on Russian disinformation says that apology won't stop the Kremlin from exploiting the incident. Their cross to bear, a survivor of clergy sexual abuse in Newfoundland, finishes a long pilgrimage to Rome with an eight-foot wooden cross, a journey they hope will move the Pope to sign a zero-tolerance policy into church law. Sand trap, so many cars get stuck on one New Jersey beach that a local bait-and-tackle shop owner has a side hustle selling calendars filled with pictures of those stranded vehicles. The shirt end of the stick. Live Nation vows to stop taking a cut of merchandise sales at certain venues. Canadian rapper Cadence Weapon says that could be the difference in whether artists break even or not. Quitters never win and wieners never quit. Two Blue Jays fans are celebrating the end of a regular season they spent in an irregular way eating as many $1 hot dogs as possible. And swarmest regards. A Philadelphia beekeeper has a message for the thief who stole his shop vac. It's full of big, angry insects, so prepare to be attacked. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that has two words for the local police, sting operation. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has now apologized on behalf of Canada for honoring a veteran of a Nazi military unit in Parliament. Members of Parliament gave that veteran, Yaroslav Hunka, a standing ovation during a visit from the president of Ukraine, not knowing his association with the Nazis. Since the truth came to light, the Speaker of the House, who invited Mr. Hunka, has resigned. Opposition MPs are still demanding answers. The incident dominated question period today. Here's Conservative leader Pierre Poiliev. It was the personal responsibility of the Prime Minister to invite President Zelensky to the floor of this House of Commons. It was his personal responsibility to make sure it was a diplomatic success. It was his personal responsibility to continue to lead the government that has the security, intelligence and diplomatic agencies that could have and should have vetted all individuals who were present and recognized. That's right. Yet this Prime Minister allowed for a monumental, unprecedented and global shame to unfold in this chamber. Will he take personal responsibility for this shame and personally apologize on behalf of himself? Right. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. On behalf of all of us in this House, I would like to present unreserved apologies for what took place 
place on Friday and to President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation for the position they were put in. For all of us who were present to have unknowingly recognized this individual was a terrible mistake and a violation of the memory of those who suffered grievously at the hands of the Nazi regime. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reiterating his apology on behalf of Parliament in question period today. Marcus Kolga tracks foreign disinformation coming out of Russia and elsewhere. He's also a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute think tank. We reached him in Toronto. Marcus, how would you rate the Prime Minister's apology? Well, look, I, I'm not sure that there's too much more that he could have done. I mean, I think that, that he needed to apologize first and, and foremost to President Zelensky, of course, who had just finished a very powerful emotional speech in the House of Commons. And then to have it all sidelined the way that it had been is deeply embarrassing for Canada and, and I think is, is, I'm sure, offensive to President Zelensky. Uh, and then, of course, the millions of, of Jewish Canadians whose families uh, had suffered under the Holocaust. This is also a group of people that he needed to apologize to. He, he did that. You know, I think this is a, a good perhaps the second step, as it were, after the mm-hmm. Speaker's uh, resignation. But uh, there's still more that, that needs to be done. The leader of the opposition is, you know, you know and then in that clip we, we just played, he wants a personal apology from the Prime Minister. He doesn't feel that the phrasing the Prime Minister has used so far, apologizing on behalf of Canada or all of us, as he said here. What difference, if any, do you think a personal apology, saying, you know, I, Justin Trudeau, apologize, is that necessary? Would that make a difference in your view? Look, I, I think, uh, you know, he needed to apologize on behalf of all parliamentarians and, and all Canadians. President Zelensky was in our House of Commons, that's our House of Commons. Um, and yeah, I think it's important for the Prime Minister, as uh, the leader of our country, to offer a personal apology to President Zelensky. Um, you know, perhaps he's already done this privately. I mean, I think it would be great to hear that uh, publicly as well, not just for the president, but but all the people of Ukraine, because this has put all of them in a in an awkward position, including uh, Ukrainians of Canadian heritage as well. Is it all coming too late, given how this incident is being used by Russia already? Well, look, Russia was going to use, they started using this uh, and exploiting this incident right from the get-go, from as soon as it it happened. And it will continue doing it. Russia's efforts uh, to exploit this uh, situation won't end today with the Prime Minister's apology. They won't end at the end of this week. This will continue on for days, weeks, and months, perhaps even years. And so parliamentarians, all parliamentarians, need to be aware that that Russia will exploit this. They will try to intensify the divisions that this has already caused and the polarization. And partisanship is is one way that they will do that. We've seen the Russian government already retweeting uh, some parliamentarians who have taken positions. And, they, you know, these are very rational posts, but we can see that r- Russian propagandists, Russian diplomats, uh, are exploiting those tweets for, other, their, for their own purposes. What purposes. other kind of specific examples have you seen? Because there have been been a couple circulating uh, that we've seen in the media. Well, there, there have been a, a few outrageous memes. There's one cartoon where uh, that depicts Christopher Freeland, the Prime Minister, and President Zelensky standing together shoulder by shoulder giving a Nazi salute, for example. There's another example where a 
uh, a postage stamp was created by some Russian propagandist, a fake postage stamp depicting the person that was recognized in the House of Commons. And this was retweeted out by the uh, Russian embassy in the United Kingdom, suggesting that the Ukrainian Postal Service was putting this out to honor that person, the person identified as being as part of the Waffen-SS. Um, this is completely fake. So even though that this entire situation has offered uh, Russian propagandists basically a gold mine, they've gone to this extreme to take it to another level by creating these fake images. Russia has been trying to paint its war as, as a fight against Nazism. Uh, There is, uh, as you know, reporting about individual Ukrainian soldiers who've been seen wearing symbols associated with Nazis. How do you deal with that reality? They may be individual soldiers. They're not part of the government, as you've said. But those images are out there as well. Well, I've seen those images as well. And this is something that uh, perhaps the the Canadian government, other governments should be raising with uh, President Zelensky and his government and raise our concern with the fact that uh, those sorts of elements made just within the Ukrainian army. I should say, conversely, on the on the Russian side, I think a lot of your listeners will remember the Wagner Group that was run by Evgeny Prigozhin. Yes, we've covered that um, quite a bit. Yeah. yeah, and the Wagner Group, the name itself was created by the founder of the group, who was very much a neo-Nazi, and that entire organization is full of individuals who. Uh, have definitely admire the the uh, Nazi army, uh, Adolf Hitler. But, you know, this is a problem. If there are any of these sorts of elements, whether it's in the Canadian army, uh, other NATO armies, or the Ukrainian army, this is something that we have to deal with and certainly flush out if they are present uh, in that army. You weren't just watching what unfolded in the House of Commons on Friday on a television. You were there yeah. for President Zelensky's visit, for his speech. So how is all of this affecting your feelings about that moment? Well, you know, I'm trying to hold on to that moment when President Zelensky was speaking. I mean, it was powerful, uh, emotional, his strong position that we cannot allow evil to prevail. It was a historic moment. And you could feel it, that everyone in the House felt it. And then when that moment came, when this person was recognized, I I was concerned because I've been watching uh, and tracking Russian disinformation now for already 15 years. I know how this narrative, how history is manipulated. And I was deeply concerned that this could derail everything and distract us from from President Zelensky's message. And and indeed, uh, that did happen. And and my real hope right now is is that we as as a country, we can have this debate about what happened. We can get to the bottom of it but that we refocus on President Zelensky, his struggle and his people's struggle to defend their their freedom, to restore their sovereignty, and to stop this barbaric war that Vladimir Putin and his armies are, are waging against them. Marcus, thank you. Anytime, Neil. Marcus Kolga is the founder of the monitoring group Disinfo Watch. He's in Toronto.
They're considered some of the best live music venues in the country, places like the Commodore Ballroom in Vancouver, the Danforth Music Hall in Toronto, and the Kita Bala in Ontario's cottage country. They routinely host the biggest names in music and provide a boost to up-and-coming Canadian acts. Now they have something else in common. Live Nation has announced it will no longer take a cut of musicians' merchandise sales at eight Canadian music venues, including the ones I just mentioned. It's a partnership with Willie Nelson. They say will save artists and crews tens of millions of dollars. Roly Pemberton got the ball rolling last year when he started the campaign hashtag MyMerch. You may know him better as the Canadian rapper Cadence Weapon. We reached him in Hamilton. Roly, what is it going to mean to you when we talk about the dollars and cents here to not have to give away a cut of your merchandise revenue to these venues? Well, not having a merch cut is very important as an artist. Um, it's the difference between, you know, breaking even and uh, losing money on a tour. What I'm more, more concerned about just seeing what Live Nation is doing is how long is this going to be happening for? Is this a permanent change? Is it only for the rest of the year? There's still a lot of ambiguity with that. You need more clarity. In terms of, of what you're selling, what kinds of things are you selling when you do these shows? Um, it would be all manner of merch, things like CDs, records, vinyl records, um, T-shirts, and uh, books as well. And what is the, the cut that these venues were were taking? Anywhere from 15% to 35%. Dollars and cents? What, what does that come out to? At the end of a tour, it could be thousands. Do you think fans know that and know that this cut was being taken? No, I don't think fans knew that. I have had so many fans reaching out to me, DMing me, being like, I never heard of a merch cut. But it, this is something that was one of those things that was just in the background that all artists knew about. It's something we talked about amongst ourselves and we're like, why is this happening? What is the history of this? But it was something that I think a lot of fans didn't realize because for fans, they, they're under the uh, assumption that buying merch is the best way to support an artist. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to the merch table. The money goes directly from me to the artist. And they don't realize that the venue is also taking a cut. I mean, it's the same thing for Beyonce or Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. They There is a merch cut for them too. It, it, it's a struggle that's universal uh, for artists. Yeah, I think there's also this prevailing thought that, that concerts are the best way for artists, big and small, to make the majority of their money, especially in, in this particular music environment with streaming and, and, and things like that. But how much of an impact w- was it having on, on artists? Like, do you know of examples where where people were in the hole? Oh, of course. I've heard it time and time again. Really, the thing is not only are they in the hole, but it also factors into whether or not they will be able to tour in the first place, you know, different territories. I've heard of people being like, oh, well, the merch cuts are going to be so bad and the travel expenses on top of that, I can't even justify going to Europe. I can't justify going to the States for a tour. You said that more needs to be done. We know so far eight venues in Canada have signed on. They're in Toronto, Vancouver, Edmonton, and in Ontario's Muskoka region. What specifically do you think needs to happen next? Do you imagine that more will sign on? I really hope that more will sign on. Um, I've been advocating alongside this American group called Yuma. This is just, we've been working on this for over a year, and we feel like this campaign by Live Nation is in response to the advocacy that we've been doing. And I'm hoping more and more venues will sign on to our group and more and more venues that are uh, live nation should have all their venues doing it, not just a few. 
You know, I, I was going to ask you about the timing because, as you well know, Ticketmaster and Live Nation, which is Ticketmaster's parent company, have certainly faced a lot of scrutiny. They've been under fire a lot uh, about ticket prices, especially when we talk about these big shows. And earlier this year, I, I spoke to a former CEO of Ticketmaster, and clearly the company doesn't like to, to back down. Uh, and he was also blaming uh, blaming fans for paying, paying these prices and said, you know, that the artists are the ones they should be directing their their rage at. So why do you think they're doing this now? Yeah, I think uh, they're feeling the pressure. They're feeling the public pressure because it's incredibly unpopular with the, the fan base uh, and the people who buy tickets. You're seeing things like uh, Biden tweeting about Ticketmaster. You know, there's uh, some concern about the DOJ trying to break up Ticketmaster, trying to break up Live Nation. So I think they're trying to, you know, this really is a, a bit of a PR exercise. Like, you know, I, I'll take a win wherever I can take a win when it comes to this this conversation. I think it's great that they decide to do it, but I do question their ulterior motives. Do you do you wish you mentioned Beyonce and Taylor Swift? Do you wish the bigger acts were being more vocal and and, and joining you as well? Of course, I would love that, but I think. You know, the thing about organizing around these issues is it's a gradual thing. And maybe it starts with like a smaller artist like me or some of my other Canadian artists that I know that I got involved. Or then it becomes the lords of the world or these, you know, it's incrementally becoming bigger artists. I think that's the thing with music. We're not organized like other industries where you're seeing they're able to collectively organize and they're getting some real action. But I'll tell you, we're very inspired by what they're doing. Are you saying there's going to be a union sometime soon? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, stay tuned. Okay, you'll let us know first. Uh, Absolutely. We've certainly, you know, you've, you've told us about how difficult it is for for musicians to to make ends meet. But are you worried in all of this that the live venues that these these artists and that you rely on will suffer because of this? That they're going to lose a lot of revenue and maybe even have to shut down. Of course. I mean, I think what we have to realize here is music is an ecosystem. We're not against each other. That's what everyone was saying at the beginning of the pandemic when the venues couldn't have shows. And they were like, hey, can you can you artists say something about how important our venue is? And like, we, we helped them out then. And all we're asking for is a helping hand in the other direction now. Roly, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was Roley Pemberton, better known as the rapper Cadence Weapon. We reached him in Hamilton. a tough season at the Rogers Center in downtown Toronto. Sometimes it has been hard to swallow, but this team never quits. And now, finally, the season is over. I'm not talking about the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm talking about the Looney Dog Kings. On Tuesday, when the hot dogs are marked down to just a single dollar, Jody Matheson and Ryan Rushton are there dressed in full body hot dog suits. Inning after inning, they gobble dog after dog after dog. Last night was the final Looney Dog night of the regular season, and to celebrate their achievement, the Looney Dog Kings were asked to throw the first pitch. 
We reached Jody Matheson and Ryan Rushton in Grimsby, Ontario. Jody, what did the final loony dog of the of the season taste like? Well, that, that's a hard question to answer because <laughs> there's the there's the real answer, <laughs> and then there's the the uh, the, the more uh, emotional answer. We'll it's, take uh, both. Uh, the, the, uh, this was my personal record, uh, there. So it was a difficult, uh, uh last looty dog of the season. Uh, uh, I, I left feeling full in every way possible. <laughs> well played. Uh, when you say difficult though, is it because you could, you, you couldn't keep it down? Oh, well, I wish that was the case. We're, we, we've done this enough times where we, we kind of know our limit. Ryan, what about you? I mean, do you lose a sense of taste at some point? Unfortunately, no. Um, no. <laughs> um, but I, I do have to say, you know, we, we were inspired by some other fans who were hanging out on Schneider's porch to, uh, you know, bring in our own toppings. So it actually, these last few uh, Looney Dog nights have tasted a lot better. And I got to say, with, with throwing out that first pitch last night, everything tasted fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about that too. What's the topping though? Um, for, for me, last night it was the, we we added, we added some uh, fresh tomatoes oh. and um, a smoky bacon mayo. That was fancy. The, the combination of those two was great. So no regrets. It sounds yeah. like Ryan. I mean, regrets in that you know I hit 140 <laughs> loony dogs on the season, but the fact that it culminated with a first pitch that ju- just wipes everything else out, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the final score you mentioned 140. What was the final final tally of your season? So I think Jody ended up at 105, and I was at 140. So so together, 245 hot dogs in 11 nights. I like I like to eat. I like food, but that's that's a lot, you guys. But why did you start doing this in the first place? To the point where you need a spreadsheet to track this. Well, the, the, so the the genesis of the story really was a dad joke. Um, my kids were going to a game with a bunch of friends, some from the UK, their first games and stuff like that. I said, "Hey, I'd love to go with you guys," and I got the the brush off of Dad. You're going to embarrass us. <laughs> so I wrote to Ryan and said, "You know, let's do some ridiculous hot dogs." I may have ordered a couple of these suits, and uh, and then yeah, we went and wore the suits. Figured we'd get on the jumbotron. The kids would be up in the 500 section. They'd see us. They'd say, "Is that?" Is that my dad? And that would be the end of the joke. But instead, we ended up in the national broadcast uh, with Buck Martinez uh, questioning <laughs> our authenticity with the, you know, are we going to believe these guys have eaten 20 hot dogs by the fourth inning? And, uh, and Hard-hitting, hard-hitting. It was hard-hitting, uh, you know, uh, journalism going on that night. And uh, we thought it was, uh, uh, you know, 15 minutes. That's great. But here we are a year later, and... and uh, it's uh, it's culminated with the first pitch. We are uh, as amazed as anybody, and uh, just feel so privileged to have been a part of it. And Ryan, you are the, the the champion this year. So what's the strategy here? What do you do to make it through and eat as many so, that many hot dogs? To get the high numbers, we always get there early because we like to get you know a nice spot on the porch. You know, you pack away as many as you can early because the lines are short, and um, then it also just allows you to you know relax a little bit more through the game um so there there's times that will will be like 80 percent done by the time the game starts how do you stay awake i wonder after <laughs> after eating that many but you you it wasn't it was a big night on a couple of fronts the, the pitch you mentioned um yep. wrapping up the season but you also hit a record right yeah so at, at the end of the pitch um when uh, eric swanson and tim Mesa came out to the mound uh, Swanson looks at us and he says, so what are you going for tonight? And 
you know, we sort of shrugged and said, you know, probably about 25. That, that's been sort of our average this year. And he says, you got to go for 30. And jo- Jody responds, dude, that's our record. And so Swanson just looks back and he's like, okay, 31. <laughs> and so that sort of, you know, became our target for the night. And, and we hit it. And I think nobody's more surprised than us at that. <laughs> What do you do to counteract what you've done to your bodies on these loony nights? <laughs> well, it's it's yeah. There's there's a lot of just. Uh, I always say the diet starts on Wednesday. Uh, my wife uh, uh, is not a big fan of us doing this, uh, so it's uh, she's always says me to work with a green smoothie of uh, yes. all the veggies and all that. So we're trying good, to just trying to get everything back in balance. Yeah. And how do your kids feel now about it all? Oh, they've embraced it. My my uh, my youngest, who's uh, who's, who's uh, in her twenties now, she she's she's our our uh, unofficial social media manager. Ah. She, she takes care of us all and and helps. There's so many people want to get a picture and want to do this, and we're always happy to oblige. It's it's really uh, you know a, a, like I said, a privilege to us to be able to bring smiles to people's faces. So she just jumps right in and and uh, moves them along, gets them into the picture, takes them for them, and. And uh, it has become a, a whole operation. It's a, it's a family affair. <laughs> well, congratulations, Jody and Ryan, and thank you. Oh, thanks for having us. We really appreciate this. Yeah, it's our it's our pleasure, and thanks thanks for helping us share the story. Take care. All the best. Bye now. Jody Matheson and Ryan Rushton, aka the Looney Dog Kings, are in Grimsby, Ontario. <laughs> It's hard enough to trek 120 kilometers across central Italy, but Newfoundland abuse survivor Gemma Hickey did that while helping carry an eight-foot-tall wooden cross. They were part of a group of victims of clergy sexual abuse who just completed their pilgrimage in the Vatican's St. Peter's Square today. Gemma Hickey wants the Pope to commit to a zero-tolerance policy for clergy suspected of being abusers. And meanwhile, back at home, the Archdiocese of St. John's has gone into bankruptcy protection. It's facing tens of millions of dollars in claims related to abuse at the Mount Cashel Orphanage. We reached Gemma Hickey in Rome. Gemma, you you did what you set out to do, carry that cross into St. Peter's Square today. What did that feel like? Well, there was a lot of conflicting emotions happening for myself as well as my team today as we entered St. Peter's Square. I was in charge as a team lead to not only navigate my own emotions and the trek, but also to navigate the emotions of everyone else. So many of us were feeling very raw, not just because of the physicality of the trip we did, but also uh, the emotional landscape which we had to uh, to go through, and and that was quite heavy. Yeah. What were some of those emotions that were swirling in your in your head and your heart as you walked those steps? Well, just the heaviness. You know, uh, I've been lobbying the Vatican for for years now. You know, it's really difficult to carry that weight with you. Uh, the cross was a symbol of that of that weight that we've all been carrying. And uh, as we were walking through rural Italy, we each took turns carrying the cross and. Many times we welled up as we we lifted the cross through thick brush, up steep climbs, mountains. Um, you know, many uh, many times during the the trek, um, the trail wasn't actually walkable, so we had to push through that. And so it was very emotional. A lot of things were coming up, as well as when we were walking through towns. There's a lot of religious uh, imagery 
when you're walking through rural Italy. So that was very triggering for, for many of us as well. You know, the, the Pope has, has used the word evil to describe sexual abuse by clergy, acknowledged that that had happened, uh, meeting with, with abuse survivors. But you don't feel that goes far enough. Why? Well, we're just hearing all talk. We're not hearing enough action. And so what we want is the Pope to sign into church law a universal zero-tolerance policy that will prevent the Vatican, the Pope, the church hierarchy from shuffling predator priests around and protecting the bishops and cardinals that have continued this harm. What would that actually mean for you and the survivors? Well, it would give us some level of commitment to show that He's been listening to our cries, our pleas. We've tried to work with these people. We have met with cardinals. We've met with top church officials, but to no avail. We deserve this. We've been carrying this weight with us for a long time. You know, the church is supposed to protect children and vulnerable adults, and instead it's protecting the people that prey on us. So that's wrong. It's been such a long fight. You talked about it just from from your personal perspective. Do you think that change will actually come? As I said, I have hope that things will change. I come from Newfoundland and Labrador, and Newfoundland and Labrador is ground zero when it comes to this type of abuse. When allegations surfaced about uh, brothers at Mount Cashel, they started to surface all over the world. No matter where I go in the world, everyone knows the name Mount Cashel. And so we are united in our shared pain and this communion of coming together. We haven't had a presence here since the Papal Summit. We had thousands of survivors here. This time we have hundreds of survivors joining us this week. We have events happening. There's a vigil to honor survivors that we've lost. And also we're going to be raiding the cardinal designates on how they handled uh, clergy abuse. So there are cardinal designates that are going to be elevated and we're going to raid them. So we have events planned. It's been successful so far. The pilgrimage has, has gotten us a lot of attention. And, um, you know, we're committed to this cause and, and feeling hopeful and united, united from all over the world. Is it exhausting, though, not just the, the physical, you know, the walk that, that you've done, but fighting this long for this? Why do you keep the doing church, it? Well, the church has never given us a choice. We've had to keep fighting. We have to name these priests. We have to do what we can. We have been calling on the institution to do the right thing for years and years and years. And each time they haven't. And so, you know, the onus shouldn't be on the survivor. The onus is on the institution to do the right thing. And as far as we're concerned, we have to keep going until till they do uh, and draw whatever kind of awareness we can uh, to this cause. You mentioned Mount Cashel and in Newfoundland and across the country. You know, it's been a long fight for settlements and for that settlement money to, to actually flow. That has happened for some starting to flow for others. It's still a fight for, for others beyond that. But do you feel that that is a step in, in the right direction? You know, a lot of the, the men who went to Mount Cashel are, are quite, uh, they're elderly now. Some of them have passed on and they deserve some peace and closure. Um, the timing of this pilgrimage was to coincide with the Pope's Synod, as well as, you know, back home in, in St. John's, uh, September 30th is the deadline for claims to be filed against the Archdiocese. And I really hope that that these men find peace. Uh, but bankruptcy, let's face it, protects the predators. And it insulates the institution from further litigation. This is you're talking church about churches who, who are facing bankruptcy or selling absolutely. the churches outright to make this money. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, it pits parishioners against survivors because parishioners have to lose their churches. And the church takes no accountability or ownership. 
So while I hope that people get closure from this, I just want to point out that this is not what accountability and transparency look like because many of these predators who are still within the church, still protected within the church, do not get named through bankruptcy. So that's something that uh, I want to draw attention to as well. And that's something that we've been trying to through campaigns for bishops to release the names of credibly accused priests. They have files there, turn them over, but they won't. So here we are and we'll keep at it. I know you have more events coming. You mentioned that. But having done what you've done now, do you feel unburdened? No, no, I don't feel unburdened. I feel a sense of release in terms of being able to share my pain with other survivors from all over the world. But, um, you know, survivors are the ones that serve a life sentence. We live in a prison of memory, and we carry this weight with us always, whereas many of the people who have abused us get to retire or go on with their lives and face no consequences. And so, you know, I'm trying to do something positive with my pain. If I can help others, that helps me. But this is a weight I'll carry till the day that I die. Gemma, thank you. Thank you. We reached Gemma Hickey in Rome. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Bob Menendez has set a new gold standard, and that is not a good thing. Today, the Democratic senator pleaded not guilty to bribery charges. He's been accused of accepting gold bars and hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash in exchange for making an arms deal favored by the Egyptian government happen. So far, the powers that be have not asked for his resignation, but Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar has. Here he is for the record. I think Senator Menendez, just like every American, is due... um, the opportunity to have a fair trial. He has an incredible track record, over 50 years of service to folks in New Jersey. Uh, He has lifted up issues that the Latino community cares about uh, time and time again. Uh, It doesn't bring me or any of us joy to say uh, that he should resign, uh, but he should uh, for the betterment of the Democratic Party, uh, for the people of New Jersey. It's better that he fights this trial Um, outside of the halls of Congress. Uh, I'd also say that Latinos face barriers and discrimination uh, across the board in so many categories, including in our uh, justice system. This is not that. Uh, What we read in the indictment and the charges, um, uh, we should not conflate uh, the discrimination uh, and the issues and the barriers that Latinos have in the justice system uh, and across uh, industries uh, to 
um, uh, to what we see there today and the struggles uh, that Latinos face and the barriers that they face in so many ways. Uh, but it would be best if he if he resigned. For the record, that was Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar speaking at a press conference. Today, Senator Bob Menendez pleaded not guilty to bribery charges. The beaches of Brigantine sing a siren song to some who visit the island off the Jersey Shore. They cannot resist that song, which is one explanation for why so many motorists drive their vehicles onto the beach, despite signs warning them off, which becomes a problem. I'm not a physicist, but as I understand it, when a couple of tons of automotive machinery meet the force of gravity while on mushy sand, the inevitable happens and those cars find themselves sunk deep in said sand. You would be happy to forget it if that happened to you, but for locals, the beached cars of Brigantine are worth remembering. In fact, they're the subject of an annual calendar published every year since 2021 by a man who calls himself Captain Andy Grossman, owner of the Riptide Bait and Tackle Shop in Brigantine, New Jersey. We reached him there. Andy, your 2024 calendar is, as I understand it, available for pre-order. So how are sales going so far? Sales, I'm just doing them right now. <laughs> Going through the emails, we've got about, uh, I don't know, maybe almost 30 now. And that's just from this morning. I left, uh, I think we turned it on at 10 o'clock. <laughs> so, and they're coming in and people have been waiting and we had a list of people calling and it's crazy. It's crazy good, <laughs> I guess. The, the big question is, what is it about these pictures of cars stuck in sand that is so appealing to people? I can't figure it out other <laughs> other than... Other than what I know, I know when somebody sends me a picture, I go and get a picture and I put it up on the Internet. You know, all of a sudden I got 60 shares off my page and people are just commenting. And, and it, it's just I guess it's become a fun thing. You know, even some of the people that that have been, you know, had their picture on the calendar come in and they laugh and they're all excited and their family call them. And so it, I, I don't really think it's a negative thing. We all make mistakes and stuff happens, but we have enough signage up on our Dry, you know, on the drive-on spots that they should know not to go on, but not everybody does. So, <laughs> do you think people are just trying to make your calendar at this point? <laughs> you know what? I've been a little leery because because I hear people saying that, oh, oh. we're going to go make the calendar. You know, I hear the younger kids or whatever, the college kids and stuff. But I I, I don't think I think most of the people because it, it costs a lot. Number one, it's going to cost you anywhere from three to five hundred to get towed. Mm-hmm. And then if the police get involved, now it's another two to five hundred dollar ticket, depending upon how you know whether they want to be you know give you a ticket or not. And it just creates just a lot of problems for a lot of people. So I don't, I, I can't conceive people don't. But you never know with with the younger generation and, and Instagram and TikTok. You know who knows? It could be the next trend. You mentioned the fines. You mentioned the signs. Why is this speech such a magnet for cars? We're an island, and there's several spots that have uh, great either sunrises in the morning or sunsets in the evening. And we're right across from Atlantic City, and there's a couple of big hotels that are there. So people might look out, you know, look out the room, and they see across the water there. We have an inlet in between us, and say, "Oh my God, look at all those what they think are cars, but they're all four-wheel drive trucks on the beach." Uh-huh. So then they think, if they could do it, why can't I? I have four <laughs> tires, and they're they're. They quickly understand why they can't. (laughs) 
Is there is there a favorite? Do you have a favorite picture in all the ones you've seen? I, I have well, the one that's going to be the cover, and I can't really talk about it because oh. I, I haven't disclosed that one yet. But you I have a great us, cover Catherine. shot that people are going to be amazed and go, "How did that car get there?" And I don't know how they got there, but I know somebody that was on a boat sent me the picture. And uh, I don't know. I've had some good ones. I've I've had the Tesla. I've had two Teslas now, as a matter of fact. And to me, Teslas, you know, when you talk about it, electricity and salt water or any kind of water, they don't play well. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, that'd be the last place I'd want to bring an electric car on the beach. But we've had everything. I had a jalopy, like a 1958 Ford. And they brought it out on the and beach? Got, and the guy got out on the beach and he made it pretty far, which I was kind of shocked. And it all depends how hard the sand is. Sometimes after a rain, and if not a lot of people have been in, the sand gets a little more packed. But if we haven't had rain and there's been a lot of sunshine, then it gets very soft and very sugary. And even some of the trucks can have trouble, you know, in four-wheel drive can have trouble. So it all depends the condition of the beach. And how long does it take for them to get out? It's usually, we usually have three or four guys that do the towing, and they're usually out there within 15 or 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It could take them, a, you know, a half hour to get them out by the time they hook them up, and then they got to pop them. And usually... It's not like a stuck four-wheel drive truck that you just pop them out and then they can continue. This you got to kind of drag till you know till you find the hard sand. And are people making it worse though? There's one thing to snap that picture, but I wonder of the, the the moments after in a panic they're trying to get out. Well, well, that's what happens a lot of times. They feel like they're slipping, and the same thing with four-wheel drive. If you're in it and, and you start spinning your tires and you gun it, thinking, well, if I give it a lot of gas. That just spins it and digs holes for your tires, and then you drop onto the frame. And once you drop onto the frame of the car or the truck, you're not going anywhere. I don't care how much air you let out of your tires. But, you know, once you hit that frame, you're done. That Then you have no choice but to call. It's so close to the water. I can't, even if there weren't, wasn't signage, I can't imagine. You can see the, the sunrise or the sunset from a little bit yeah. further back, right? You don't need exactly. to. Exactly. Oh, oh. I agree, but, you know, if, if 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 that's good, then this has to be better. You're getting closer, <laughs> even though you're still 9 billion miles away. But it's still, you want to be right next to the water. For people that don't, that aren't around the water, maybe, you know, it's that big of a draw because it really is beautiful down there, so. It, it does, it does look very beautiful, uh, being stuck in the sand, much, much less so. I wonder what, you know, yeah. obviously people... Yeah, it, it's a thing to have your calendar. You're giving the money away for a good cause, so I can see that why that people wanna would want to buy it as well. And you said it's all really good nature, but I wonder if people also get kind of a kick out of seeing human versus mother nature. Yeah, play out yeah, this way. yeah. And and I think what you know, a lot of people they call it stupid stupidity, and and when <laughs> that's, and that's a word for I it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I haven't gotten a, an answer when I've gone down, and and I say. What were you thinking? Well, that's what it usually is. We wanted to see the water. We wanted to see the sunset. We wanted to see the, you know, it's just, I can't see how you can think your car can make it on sand. But here's the other thing is that a lot of people drive these all-wheel drive. It's not good on sand because the opposite tires spin, and you need actual four-wheel drive. You need all four wheels going at the same time to keep you off the calendar anyway. Any advice for people who might be taking a car trip out to Brigantine, New Jersey? Yeah, I tell them, stop by the shop, give me a call, I'll, I'll, I'll drive you on the beach, I'll, I'll bring you down to the water, I'll let you touch the water, don't take your car, park your car in my dry, in, in, in my parking lot, and we'll get you down there, or we'll walk you down. <laughs> don't drive on the sand, it's very simple. Andy, thank you. All right, thank you. 
Captain Andy Grossman, owner of the Riptide Bait and Tackle Shop and the publisher of the Beached Cars of Brigantine Calendar. We reached him in Brigantine, New Jersey. We don't know what Fox News thought would happen when its reporter went to Seattle, but it's probably safe to assume things didn't go as planned. The Democratic city is on pace to set a new record for recorded homicides this year. But when Fox's Johnny Belisario confronted Seattle residents about crime in their city, he didn't get salacious sound bites from a city in peril. Instead, he got trolled. I've never seen any crime in Seattle. I've never seen any of it. I've seen fun and laughter and laughter and fun. I don't believe that number. People, they're, you know, getting robbed out here, carjacked. I've never heard of anyone getting robbed. Crime is a social issue that could be solved by giving people their basic needs. It's not a thing that happens just on the street. People don't just come up and try to rob people on the street. Seattle decriminalized drug use, and then they criminalized it again. Oh, my God. Who are you getting these facts from? You're from New York. Apparently, you're listening to the wrong people. I saw a lot of people shooting up on my way down here. Oh, did you? Okay. And they were bothering you? I was in a car, but, you know, people... Oh, oh no, people, you're in a car! Oh, no, they were hurting you so bad! Oh, no! Now, if you're a journalist who starts with a certain premise, such as that it is absolutely terrifying to live in Seattle, and everyone you speak to in Seattle tells you you're wrong, you reconsider your premise. But Fox News is proud not to work that way. And in this case, its motto is, when life gives you lemons, insist the lemons don't know what they're talking about. So Fox doubled down and presented those interviews as proof that Seattle is, quote, a progressive hellscape. Well, they're in denial and they've accepted the death spiral. One anchor comments the situation sounds like a big joke to them, which clearly was if by situation they mean the reporter's questions. What is not clear, however, is whether host Jesse Waters, whose voice you just heard, is in on the joke. Because while Mr. Waters blames the supposed arrogance and ignorance of Seattleites on their Democratic leaders, he also suggests another factor could be at play. When you go there, there is a kind of a dark pall that hangs over the city. It's, it's, it's sad. It's, you're not getting sunlight there. People are depressed. I haven't, I've saw an abundance of purple hair, an abundance of masks, more masks there than I see here uh, per capita. And it, it is, remember Nirvana? Remember the grunge scene? It's the same type of people. Too much Patagonia, Judge. It was a very <laughs> unhealthy looking crowd. Oh, there you have it. Some 30 years later, grunge is still having an impact. If you just got home from work, there may have been something waiting for you at the front door, a cardboard box or a white envelope emblazoned with the Amazon logo. In fact, if you look at your neighbor's front doors, you might see Amazon packages waiting for them too. When you think about that, it can seem a little creepy. Well, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has been thinking about it, and now it's going after Amazon for what it calls illegally maintaining its monopoly power. 
Yesterday, along with 17 state attorneys general, the FTC sued Amazon, which has said it fundamentally disagrees with the allegations, calling them in many cases wrong or misleading. Tom Cotter is an antitrust scholar and a University of Minnesota law professor. We reached him in Minneapolis. Tom, did you order anything on Amazon today? <laughs> no, I have not. Are you are you a regular? Do you use the Prime service? I use it with some frequency, yes. Do you think the popularity, could the popularity of the service, does that tell you anything about how this case might go? I think it will for the following reasons. So under U.S. antitrust law, the ultimate touchstone is whether a company's business practices are harming consumers by raising prices, lowering output, degrading quality, things like that. And the FTC, in this case, Federal Trade Commission, is alleging that Amazon's practices ultimately do harm consumers by preventing rivals to Amazon from gaining a sufficient foothold in the marketplace that they could offer competition that would ultimately make consumers better off. Amazon will argue in its defense that uh, the practices being challenged, uh, in fact, benefit consumers Mm -hmm. and that uh, they are, uh, for that reason, uh, perfectly consistent with uh, Amazon's legal obligations. It is not a violation of the law merely to be a monopolist, to possess monopoly power. There also has to be a showing that the monopolist has engaged in anti-competitive or exclusionary practices that have no legitimate pro-competitive, pro-consumer business justification. And I think that will be the probably the most difficult part of the case for the FTC to establish that. So is uphill battle uh, an understatement here? I think it will be an uphill battle. And again, just going back to the legal standards, even the first part, possession of monopoly power, is not uh, a given. Does Amazon have monopoly power? The FTC alleges that Amazon is a monopolist, meaning in legal terms, not 100% of the market, but like 60% or more. The allegation is that Amazon has uh, that sort of dominant market share in the market for online superstore services and in the market for online marketplace services. That's the Amazon fulfillment, uh, the the FBA, the fulfillment uh, by Amazon. So, uh, Those are the allegations of what the market is. Uh, But Amazon will argue in its defense that no, they they have a large market share in online retail services, maybe 30, 40%, but not monopoly. And so a lot of that will come down to resolving what is the appropriate way of thinking about the market. Is online superstore a market unto itself, or is Amazon in competition with bricks and mortar stores, with other online retailers that don't sell quite as broad a range of products? So that will be one major point of the dispute, defining the market. If the FTC prevails on that issue, though, then it still has to go on and show that the exclusionary practices that are alleged uh, not only have occurred, but uh, that they have ultimately harmed or pose a very substantial risk Mm -hmm. of harm to consumers. Amazon calls this suit, quote, misguided. It says it will make Prime less convenient uh, and more expensive, and goes even further to say it feels the FTC has a a misunderstanding of of retail. Does it have a point? Well, they might. I mean, a lot of this will depend on the facts as they come out at trial. And, And the complaint itself 
includes a lot of redactions, a lot of parts mm -hmm. that are actually blotted out, so you can't really tell precisely what the facts are. So it's always a good idea to defer judgment uh, when we're not sure yet what all the all the relevant facts will be, but uh, I'm sure that both parties will uh, put on their strongest case to try to show that the facts uh, substantiate the positions that they are supporting. Whatever happens at the end of this case, will it impact consumers? And, and if so, how so? If the FTC prevails, it is asking for what is referred to as both structural relief and uh, conduct relief. And conduct relief means that they're asking that courts say that these practices um, are unlawful and that Amazon has to stop doing them. And we haven't really talked too much about what the specific practices are, but that would be part of what the FTC would require um, that, uh, that, or that the court would require if it finds for the FTC, that Amazon uh, stop coercing the sellers to use Amazon's fulfillment services, that Amazon stop coercing sellers um, from uh, potentially offering lower prices on other uh, websites than they do on Amazon. Those are the two principal pieces of conduct at issue. So that would be conduct relief. But in addition, towards the very end of the complaint, the FTC also um, is reserving the right to ask for structural relief. And if that were granted, that could in theory mean uh, a breakup of Amazon, maybe breaking up the retail services from the fulfillment services. I, I'm not sure. They don't go into detail about what that would look like. That sort of structural relief is extremely uncommon in antitrust law. So it's a possibility if it did happen, that would certainly have the potential to impact consumers. Tom, thank you. All right. Glad to be of help. Thanks. Professor Tom Cotter is an antitrust scholar and the associate dean for research and planning at the University of Minnesota's law school. He's in Minneapolis. In competitive eating circles, he's known as the molten moose. And that moose was not about to let a rival win without going antlers to antlers. In fact, Mike Jack was so committed to asserting pepper-eating dominance that he didn't just set a world record for the fastest consumption of 50 Carolina Reaper peppers. He went on to eat 85 more peppers just for kicks. That achievement just earned him the number two spot on the League of Fire Reaper Challenge leaderboard, which is a thing that inexplicably exists. And it's only the latest in a series of eye-watering displays that have made Mr. Jack very famous in very particular circles. In 2021, we spoke with the competitive eater about an earlier world record in which he consumed three Carolina Reapers in a blistering 9.72 seconds. Here's that conversation with former As It Happens host Carol Off from our archives. I've, I've felt worse, for sure, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty hot. It was pretty hot in my mouth. <laughs> hot in your mouth and hot going down as well? Uh, yeah, that's where, I think it was maybe like about an hour later is when it got like pretty rough in the, in the tummy. And we didn't get a sense of how fast you were eating those hot peppers. Um, how many did you eat and how quickly did you do it? That was the, the Guinness record for fastest time to eat uh, three Carolina Reaper peppers. The time to beat was, uh, I believe it was uh, 10.95 seconds, and I did it in 9.72 seconds. And so, okay, 
But is it actually better to do it quicker than slower? I mean, is it because you you were chewing pretty, you were chomping down pretty pretty hard on those peppers? Ah, uh, yeah, for sure. It's uh, when eating peppers. Um, I've eaten uh, a lot of peppers. It's uh, it's best to eat them fast. To be honest, like uh, I didn't even really feel the heat until it was all done and over with because I've kind of built up a tolerance to heat. I guess most people, uh, you know, if you just touch them to your tongue, it's going to be pretty unbearable, but I've been at this for a while. On a scale of 1 to 10, how hot are Carolina Reaper peppers? I'd say for most people, on a scale uh, 1 to 10, it's probably a 12. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how do they rate in the the scale of hot peppers? Is that one of the hottest? Yeah, the Carolina Reaper, um, it has the Guinness record right now for uh, the world's hottest pepper. So they average 1.6 million Scoville heat units, and they can get up to, uh, I think the the top end is like 2.2 million Scoville heat units. Wow. And so, and you had, you, you, you consumed, you threw them back. And so how did you prepare your body for that? Well, it's it's best not to eat uh, spicy stuff, uh, especially the world hottest peppers on an empty stomach. So I try to eat something that's going to, like, um, sit in your stomach. So I usually, my favorite thing is, like, uh, some fried uh, hash browns, like home fries sort of thing. I'll, like, eat a, eat a bowl or two or of those before. And, uh, and yeah, it kind of makes a kind of a layer in your stomach. And then, and then afterwards, too, you don't really feel like eating after eating super spicy stuff sometimes. And uh, But the best thing to do is to just try to keep eating just to... Make sure your stomach doesn't, because once it gets empty and it's just those peppers in there, that's where it's bad news. Yes. Okay, so milk doesn't help? You can't drink milk to mitigate that? Um, yeah, that's what that's what most people would use, uh, milk or some kind of uh, dairy product. But I'm actually vegan, so I don't, uh, I don't do any dairy. If you're vegan, you, you must care about what you put into your, your stomach, into your gut. So why would you, do, why would you punish your, your intestines to this degree? I'm vegan more for, like, I'm vegan for the animals, not necessarily as a as a dietary choice. I still eat, uh, you know, uh, like Oreos and vegan donuts, stuff like that. So it's not like a super health thing. But um, I just like spicy food, and uh, I just kept getting spicier and spicier. And then I tried eating hot peppers, found out there was kind of like a following or kind of like a cult community, I guess, of, of people who, you know, eat peppers and other spicy challenges and stuff like that and realized that I was good at it. And I just kind of pushed myself as far as I could go. Why did you decide that you wanted to do to be into competitive hot pepper eating? It kind of just escalated. Um, and I guess it all kind of starts with a dare. Like when I was in college, I had roommates who were into, you know, just hot sauce and stuff like that, like, um, you know, Frank's or Sriracha or whatever. And they kind of got me into just hot sauce. It was kind of like, oh, what's the matter, Mike? Like, you don't want any hot sauce on your pizza? Are you a wuss or something? So then I would, uh, you know, I'd partake in that. And uh, one of my friends, uh, he really wanted to start a YouTube channel. And we didn't really know what we were going to do. But then he was like, oh, you're really good at, um, you know, with the spicy stuff. So why don't we do that? So I watched a couple of videos and started doing some of the stuff and, People liked it, and I kept pushing my limits. Eventually, I looked into, like, Guinness World Records, and I learned how to, like, eat, eat. I, I didn't really know how to do that. And, yeah, now that's my uh, that's my fourth Guinness World Record there. It's all pepper eating? All for pepper eating, yeah. There's eight different uh, Guinness records on the, for eating hot peppers on their website. 
and I have four of them now, so I'm halfway to, to getting the whole collection. Competitive eater Mike Jack speaking with Carol Off on As It Happens in January 2021. Since then, he has lost that record, but won another by eating 50 Carolina Reapers in 6 minutes and 49 seconds, and then eating 85 more for good measure. Of all the vacuums in all the trucks that they could have grabbed, I think they grabbed the wrong one. That is Don Shump. Someone stole his vacuum, and he's deeply concerned for the person who stole it. Last Thursday, Mr. Shump was out doing a job with his shop vac. He put it in the back of his pickup truck, drove home, went to bed, and got up the next morning to find someone had taken it overnight, which was a problem for him. He needs it for work, but probably a bigger problem for the thief. Because, as he explained to WPVI-TV in Philadelphia, Whoever it was that, that grabbed this grabbed a shop vac that was filled with several hundred hornets. And not just the workers, they had a preponderance of queens. You know hornets and how they're big and scary. Well, hornet queens are bigger and scarier. And you know how you would be upset if you got vacuumed up and you don't have a stinger? Well, those big hornet queens that have been confined in a shop vac since they were unceremoniously sucked out of their homes are probably furious. And when they get out, they're not going to thank the person who released them. They're going to get revenge. And unlike bees, hornets don't die after they sting you. Each hornet can sting you again and again. And just to remind you, there are several hundred of them in the stolen shop vac. I should mention that Don Shump runs a beekeeping operation and also conducts removals, which is why he had a vacuum full of hornets in the first place. In a Facebook message, he warned the thief about the mysteriously buzzing contents of that shop vac. Those girls should be full of life and extra spicy, he wrote. I anxiously await your unboxing video. I hope the thief is listening, because Mr. Shump isn't just tooting his own hornets. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.